guys, just up top, this episode is on mental health and as you can imagine, it's been really challenging for me to write about my own personal mental health experiences in the book and also talk about them here on the podcast. Um, I also acknowledge that it's really challenging for you all to submit your stories and to be really vulnerable on such a public forum. So I just want to thank everyone for making this such a safe space where we can have this conversation, but also highlight the importance of these conversations and the ways that they change people's lives, make people feel seen and heard, and hopefully make some changes within the industry by normalizing mental health conversations. So I just wanted to say up top how appreciative I am of having this space to be able to comfortably talk about this with you with um and yeah i hope you guys enjoy this episode even though it's a little bit deeper than usual let's get into the podcast hello and welcome to episode six of how to conserve conservationists this week we're talking about mental health the chapter is called just keep swimming i'm jesse i'm here with todd hello And I guess up top, just a disclaimer that if you suffer from any mental health issues, this episode may be triggering with some of the things we might talk about. So listen at your own discretion. And if you have um, serious mental health problems, please go see a professional. We're not licensed counsellors or therapists, and we cannot medically help you. You say that very good advice, but... Sort of the whole point of this chapter is uh, not always very easy. Yeah, it's not easy, but don't get all your medical advice from us. We are not licensed (laughs) professionals. That's what I'm here to say. Um, If you do want mental health resources, you can go to our website and there's a whole section for mental health resources around the world. Um, So... If anything, we're just going to be detrimentally talking about (laughs) it is rough, it is hopeless. But I hope it's it's not going to be too depressing. I think mental health is something that needs needs to be talked about and shed light on, but it maybe won't be as, like, boisterous and hilarious. Like, not to say that our episodes are hilarious. (laughs) But but if this episode is more serious, this is why. Anyway, so... (laughs) Um, this chapter... Laugh. <laughs> yeah, well, I think laughing is a defense mechanism. What else can you do? Like, a lot of comedians stop being funny when they seek help for their <laughs> depression. The fools? The fools, no. is I think, like, comedy is a serious coping mechanism to mental health issues, so... Well, comedy is just tragedy time plus time. Yeah, so... I guess that's actually why I can talk about the stuff that I talk about in the book is because it's been enough time. Yeah. Um, and I, it's interesting as well because I grapple with this every day of how hard it is to for people to publish their stories on Lonely Conservationists because it's their personal... It's like you're writing a diary entry and then putting it on a public forum. Yeah. And that's the same with me in this book. I talk about p- personal mental health struggles. So to publish that and know all these professionals will read it, like my mum, Todd's mum, everyone can read this book of like my internal struggles that I haven't really talked about with anybody is really bizarre. And I think why I did it and why it's important to talk about it is because if we keep suppressing the need for mental health help, and if we keep not acknowledging the mental health issues that arise in the conservation space, how is anything going to improve for the next generation of conservationists? So... Even though it's challenging to talk about anyone, it's hard for anyone to talk about mental health, really. It's important that we do, because I think this is the space. This is definitely the longest chapter in the book and the space that we need the most attention drawn on. 
and here we are having that conversation today. <laughs> um, so, so what what are your experiences with mental health stigma in the conservation industry? I think I didn't realize how much I grappled with the stigma or that there even was a stigma until after returning from Indonesia. And we've talked about this before, how tough Indonesia was, but I guess not. We've talked about it to a small extent, but not really to you. It wasn't a holiday. It wasn't a holiday. We've talked about it in that regards. But I mean, after getting back from Indonesia, which was like six months of me grappling with my rights reduced as a woman, and even like the first time I turned on the TV, the judge Judy or the equivalent in Indonesia <laughs> was um, sentencing someone to prison for being gay. And just being in a country where that's the norm is very is very hard to sit in a place where your intrinsic values are questioned. And even like living in a mosque with Todd unmarried, I was always living in fear that I would be arrested because <laughs> it was illegal to live unmarried with a man. And sometimes we were living in sin after all. We would have to stagger our walking into the house like I would have to walk in and Todd would have to leave the office like half an hour later or half an hour earlier so people didn't think we were there at the same time like it was always like we were living with one eye in the back of our heads well I know you were but I wasn't okay this is like a big gender thing (laughs) Todd as a handsome tall white man was like worshipped over there as like a god amongst men and he could do whatever he was ever he was whatever he wants Um, So my experience there was very different to Todd's and I think on coming back, so in the last episode we mentioned he bought a passport to to fly over with me so he'd never been overseas before and when he got back home he had this brand new confidence I'd never seen in him before. You know when you get that like after travel confidence? I think that's a lot of people, right? Yeah. They'll they'll talk about like if you live in a boring place and like, oh, I remember when I travelled to, you know, this exotic location for a month. That would be like a defining feature of their life for the next decade. Yeah, so this was like a defining feature of Todd's life. <laughs> I think because you'd never been to a place like this before, but I think you you grew a lot. Like Todd, we said before, even finds not having chairs to sit on as like a big inconvenience. So being in a place without chairs is new. You've conquered a fear. You yeah. Have, you can do anything now. <laughs> <laughs> that was my biggest problem. <laughs> and I think meanwhile, I came back home really after six months of living in fear really did a number on me and it wasn't just living in fear but also like a few family things like medical things happened where I was like worried about things that were not even happening around me Um, my supervisor back home was being horrible to me I got snared there was kids lighting fires on our porch there was builders I don't know if I talked about this in another episode but I got back from a camp and there was a builder in my bed because he thought I was a prostitute. <laughs> and just like... I thought it was a lazy builder just taking a nap on the job. Whatever it was. I They used to go when I used to get home from work because like, I was living in my boss's house. and It was a weird living arrangement. <laughs> I was living there alone for a bit. Um, actually, I was living there with two women and they were too scared to go outside themselves. So they're like, Jesse, you can't go anywhere. It's not safe. Then, then you just sort of have to assume that they're the locals and they know. Yeah. And then when Todd, before Todd came, there was a period where they both moved out because they didn't want to live with a man. So is that why they left? Yeah, it's like a sin for them to live with a man. It's haram. 
So we'll be, we're not in the, all in the same bed. It's <laughs> <laughs> still in the house. You can't live in the house with them. So they moved out and there was a period of time where I was alone. There was these builders working on the house because my boss wanted upgrades to his house. And he, he the builders... Just doing the patio and the stuff. The builders didn't know I understood Indonesian. So when I got <laughs> home, they would be like, the bule is coming. And I'd be like, I can understand you, bro. Like whatever you're doing up there that you need to warn him about... You shouldn't be what doing, are you doing it. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, so I, when I found him in my bed, I marched over because we live like five minutes walk from the office. I marched over to the office and I was like, I don't know what is acceptable here, but where I come from, you don't just let builders sleep in your bed. <laughs> and my boss was like, yeah, that's not normal here either. And went back and reprimanded them, but they still kept their jobs. Like, so I was always <laughs> living in fear of these, like I never had privacy I, and I was always worried about getting caught out. And then one time the builder saw Todd in my bedroom and I had to say, oh no, Swami, Swami, like he's my husband. Even though he wasn't, but I could get arrested otherwise. What? What, if if you're a, a builder handyman redoing the patio and you've been caught sleeping in the bed on the job, you've been caught like... You want to take me Arguably down. <laughs> trying to like sneak a look at you in your room a few yeah. times. And you were still worried that like he would try and take the moral high ground and rat you out. Yeah. Like, I'm a woman. The dirty had, little scoundrel. I had no rights. Like I was getting objectified for having a t-shirt on. That <laughs> I was wearing a long skirt down to my ankles. And the only part of me that was visible was my face and my forearms. And my forearms oh, were like a sex symbol. Those sexy forearms. I know. <laughs> but it was really hot, so I was like, whatever. It is, is, there's a lot of like, you know, that's just it. It's a different culture, different social norms. Yeah. But like, it just stressed you out heaps. Yeah, there was like so many layers of stress. Um, like, I think I was... Everyone thinks honours are stressful. I've heard that that's more stressful than a PhD or a master's. I just have yeah. a lot of people sympathizing with me about how bad honors is. So we had like the whole degree situation. We had things happening in my family back home. Then we had the added stress of everyday living, my mm. supervisor. Like it was just, I came home after six months of being stressed. Mm. And so there's an ologies episode really famous that talks about stress is fear. And like, if you feel stress is like the, um, like the lay person's way of saying you're scared or something. So I was like living in fear <laughs> of my life for six months, especially like that orangutan thing happened. Like I actually almost died. I got snared. There's so many layers of fear and, and well, like it will, took will you I a survive? long time to even begin to think that that could be like a mental condition that needed to be addressed. Cause you just saw it as like outside trauma, trauma, Tra- you just you just saw it as like you know there were legitimate reasons to be anxious all the time yeah and now that those things are gone i should be fine now so i won't worry about it true and so i got home with this going on in my brain but also keeping in mind todd was the happiest most confident he's ever been everyone's like how's your trip and he's like i'll happily tell you how my trip is oh so amazing so compared to i was living with that as like the standard like this is what i should be like yeah todd's happiness and confidence is like the benchmark but yeah <laughs> when we got home i didn't want to like so we lived in a house where todd had kind of set it up to be a place where anyone could come hang out at any time always having board game nights having drinks like watching 
like Game of Thrones. It was just like a very communal house. <laughs> you're dating us. It was like when everyone was over, I just stayed in my room. I couldn't deal with being around everyone. And there was one time though everyone was there. I didn't show my face and then I came out and made a stack of pancakes and they thought I was doing it for everyone, but it was just for me and I went back into my room. <laughs> you weren't being yourself. No, but I think like I didn't, I couldn't explain what it was. I just didn't have the social capacity. If I don't know if it was like answering people's questions about like I didn't want to talk about it or even if just after everything I'd been through, just talking to people in general, maybe I thought that the, what they would talk about would be too... Well, this is kind of a tangent, but when I worked at Subway, I went to Africa for three months, came back, and a customer complained that there was a fly on their sandwich and I had to start from the beginning and remake it because a fly touched it for two seconds. That deeply moved something within me from just being in Africa where people would... I would have eaten sandwiches covered in flies. Mm. And this person was like, Re- chuck away this food. Yeah. Just throw it away and make a whole new sandwich because a fly touched it for Someone's two seconds. Someone's reverse culture shock. Yeah, it's like that level of if somebody said anything that was like, I don't know if it's too superficial, I can't handle it because I'm dealing with such internal deep trauma that I can't handle like oh jesse your fly's undone i'm like i don't care (laughs) i don't know i don't know if because i i just removed myself from the situation like Mm -hmm. there was a time they all were playing games i just went to the beach and went for a swim by myself like i just spent a lot of time retracting myself from everyone and i'm not even like i didn't even think about this literally until we're talking about it now i didn't realize (laughs) how much i removed myself from social situations yeah and how much that was like my coping mechanism because you maybe a sign that you weren't fine (laughs) yeah so basically instead of dealing with this because as todd said like i there was reasons to be scared now there wasn't anymore so in my brain i was like oh there's no reason for me to feel scared anymore feel bad anymore so i just assume that i do feel fine again yeah um so what i decided was i can't sit around here all day i got to get my next conservation job And this was another big layer is that I spent my whole entire life from the age of three working to be an orangutan researcher, conservationist. Mm. In that trip, I realized I cannot, this can't be my life because of like, this is not for me. I'm a white person. This would be like window shopping their culture. Like there's no sustainable way for me to have long-term conservation impacts to stay in Indonesia and yeah. to continue working there like i don't have kids to pass on generations of knowledge to you i don't have a permanent role in this environment so i was like i have to come home i don't have a place here that makes sustainable sense for the long-term conservation of these ecosystems so <laughs> I, get, I get home with the notion that my whole life i had been working towards one goal and one goal only that's how i determined my school that's how I determined my uni course. That's how I determined every piece of like extracurricular, extracurricular activity until that point. That whole, my whole life, I had to start it again. So I decided to take this job in rural New South Wales, which I talked about in the last episode, how I got really into burning. But I was the only 20-something-year-old there. It was a very isolating place. I was getting paid $100 a week 
would you say it's almost as isolating as Indonesia was culturally? Yeah, it was it was yeah. like a rural country town where everyone knew each other. So you go to the bakery, they knew what you had for breakfast because someone had been there before to get something and they would say, oh, Jesse's having grapefruits. And you're like, oh, you had a nice grapefruit for breakfast? So there was like no privacy. Like it was because it's a small town. Everyone knows everyone's business. It's very gossipy. Yeah. Um, and the family was horrendous because... <laughs> The father was a workaholic and he neglected his family because of that. Therefore, the mother coped with it by drinking. She was an alcoholic and the children were fighting for attention. Like they were, they would scream, they would holler. There was the daughter would go around. This is your armchair (laughs) psychologist assessment. Yeah. The daughter would ride around on like those ride on mowers and scream at the top of her lungs. Like, (laughs) And so it was a very chaotic place to live, but also the reason I went there was to help with um, sustainable tourism stuff. But they ended up making me run the like the cottage, like hotel tourism side, look after the family. They just nipped off to France for like months, and they like, did. They like no, it was like two weeks. They just like we're going to France. I know you have no experience in hotels. Run our whole business. Look after our children. Feed them like do the shopping yeah tend to our guests i was not there for that i was oh, there wait. for sustainable tourism and helping find like basically they were saving money by reducing like um energy costs like they would save energy the money they would save from that i would determine which environmental cause that money would be used for so it was like completely not to do with anything they were getting me to do yeah. So in a time where I should be staying at home, dealing with my feelings from Indonesia, I decided to leave Todd and spend, I was going to spend a year with this family. <laughs> and I was like, it's fine if they're only paying me $100 a week. Which is criminally crim- low. <laughs> I, they're giving me their car. They're feeding me. They're giving me a place to stay. If I was paying my own bills, I justified it as I'd probably only have $100 left at the end of the week anyway. <laughs> Maybe not true. Um, but... This was a bad decision for me to put myself in another turbulent situation without having dealt with my past trauma from Indonesia. And I think it's fair to say that it was trauma. Looking back on it and seeing other people's blogs and reading the trauma that they went through, it's like very relatable. I have not been diagnosed. I have never gone to seek medical help because of the stigma. It's amazing how you would hear other people's experience, explain their experiences on the blog, and you'd be like, "Oh my god, that you know that sounds awful." I'm, you know, I'm so glad that they're you know seeking help and they've you know really better protest it now. But then, like, you also relate to it and be like, "Oh, just like I did," and then I didn't do anything about it. Well, the crazy thing is, is somebody submitted a blog and they told me off the blog that they had PTSD, and what they described sound exactly like what I was going through but I can't say that I have it because I was never diagnosed yeah you, you don't want to self-diagnose that yeah. sort of stuff so but it, you, you <laughs> sympathize with their feelings a lot so basically the stigma is that in conservation my the stigma for me is that I had to keep being a conservationist so if I was sitting at home after Indonesia dealing with my problems I was not being a conservationist. I was just being a a sad person. 
I had to get whatever job I could get, no matter the quality of the job. Like, I had to just get back into a position where I was a conservationist again. That would give me the feeling of being whole, the feeling mm. of having purpose. And I prioritized that notion of being a successful conservationist, like maybe an outward projection, like that's what I wanted other people to think. Mm. I, I preferred that or I, I, I chose to do that over fixing myself which was not smart <laughs> and so the reason you bring it up for conservationists especially is because a lot of people in more normal lives they you know live at home or at least have you know family and friends that are easily accessible at all times you know if they if they really identify that they need help they can you know see a doctor it depends on what country and how it, what the mm. process is but you can you know seek help but if you're in the middle of the forest and having a panic attack you're a bit just screwed oh yeah and like because even in this family context i was probably the most sane one there so if i was having any kind of mental breakdown it would have fit in it would have looked normal <laughs> there was too much psychological stuff going on in that house that yeah i couldn't even think that i had anything wrong with me but yeah. anyway like obviously that house was too toxic for me to live in um, I got a rescue crew to come up and get me in the, literally the middle of the night <laughs> take me back to Sydney so I could fly home. You're like, nah, sick of this. Not yeah. working. <laughs> but um, after them, I still... Well, obviously there's lingering issues because I, had, I still hadn't dealt with anything. But mm. I didn't think after that time, I was like, Indonesia was ages ago now. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I should be fine. But there's also, like, if you want to get mental health help in Australia you have to be diagnosed with a disorder. And after, like exactly what Todd said, I faced reasons to be scared. I don't have those reasons anymore. It was for such an isolated time. I, that is not a disorder in my brain. Like I do not have a disorder now because I experienced like troubling, turbulent times for six months. Yeah. So... My first barrier to getting help was I had to be diagnosed with a disorder. Secondly, if I was not eligible for a mental health plan and I was not diagnosed with a disorder, I had to pay money to see a therapist, money which I didn't have because I'd been working for $100 a week <laughs> mm. and like had to spend the money I did have getting home when I just hightailed it out of there. <laughs> so I didn't have any money. And even now I know lonely conservationists have to make serious decisions about whether they're going to spend $150 on therapy or on eating for the week. Like that is their decision is like, what's more what important, do you need to survive my, more? like my stomach satiation or my brain? <laughs> like that is a legitimate concern for conservationists. If we're not getting paid, how can we seek help? And I know in Todd's job, in a lot of corporate jobs, there's like counseling services aligned with the job. Yeah. Well, like if you, if you have a company of like, you know, more than 10,000 people, it might be worth it to your company to be like, all right, we'll pay this, you know, psychologist uh, firm a few grand a year and employees can just call them up and be like, hey, I'm thinking about this, I have problems with that. And they can just, you know, immediately quick, easy access mm -hmm. to a trained professional, which, you know, if you're just some rinky dink, oh yeah, we have a little camp here and we study elephants, you know, they're not, they're not going to have that. Yeah. This, is, this is not possible. Yeah, I heard of like literally yesterday, no, the day before I heard of a psychologist at a project in Borneo. And that's the first time I've ever heard of a psychologist being on a camp. 
Like, yeah. I've never heard of it before then. Were they there for the people? The people? Yeah. Wow. I know. <laughs> yeah. That, like, <laughs> well, forget everything in this chapter. Turns no, out no, the problem like is that, fixed. No, no, that's one one place, right? Yeah. yeah. So it, the, there's so many problems with seeking help in conservation because there's there's financial like there's financial what it barriers. There's like the I guess lack of awareness of like. I was talking to someone and I was like, I never sought help because I didn't think I had a chronic issue. And they're like, chronic just means it happens like a lot of times. And if you experience it for more than one day, it's, it's chronic. Yeah. <laughs> That's like, probably not the medical definition, but he said something to me like he said the actual definition and it was like along those lines. Yeah. So I think the the stigma around the words disorder and chronic as things that like maybe I had imposter syndrome of like, oh, it's not that bad. Like. Yeah. I don't have a disorder. I don't have anything chronic. I don't. It, it's it, fine. It's a very old school way of thinking, but it is still very popular and sort of necessary for conservationists to be like, oh no, no, no. You know, I'm I'm not sick. I don't have a problem. I'm really tough and a superhero. Yeah. And I can get over anything. Because when I did research on the conservationists in our blogs, what we're most inspired by one of the top things is our own resilience. Like, people <laughs> value resilience in conservation because you have to be. Yeah. And I think some conservationists told me that they needed to seek medical help. Like, they knew they had a mental health disorder. They didn't because they were in academia and there was such a high standard of perfectionism that they said even if they did seek help, it would have caused them so much trouble in their whatever their group was yeah their workplace would have been like whoa you know if you're seeing a shrink obviously we can't trust you you're doing this work you're fired so they waited until they finished their degree before they started getting help because of that pressure so there's like so many layers of reasons why people don't seek help and like to this day i still haven't sought help because it's been four years since i've been in indonesia now and i guess over time i've developed mechanisms to overcome a lot of the issues I was facing, I still don't think I'm Some perfect. self-medication <laughs> with uh, wine. <laughs> um, I learned from that that woman that I was staying with not to do that. Yeah, it <laughs> it would work. be a slippery slope. Um, but I still feel guilty. There's like even a layer of guilt that I haven't when I'm so mental health positive in lonely conservationist, knowing that there's still these barriers to me personally seeking help. And do you think there's a lot of like just gross misunderstanding of it because like, i know to me if you say post-traumatic stress disorder i imagine like you know some guy who went to a war and saw his buddy get blown up by a mine or something yeah and, and how was, can like, i living with that experience i know there's so many people in conservation with ptsd it, and it doesn't feel like the same thing yeah like i know there's people with ptsd in conservation yeah i still think of the war veterans and think i have never seen my friend explode i'm fine yeah like that's not, i haven't got that problem yeah so there's like always like comparing yourself to others and saying like i'm i don't know i'm not as bad as this person but i mentioned yeah. in one of the episodes that i was having a hard time responding to emails and so whenever my supervisor messaged me an email or like emailed me about something it was always really harsh like he refused to i was when i got to indonesia and i was like oh there was this permit we didn't know we had to get um we can't start researching unless we fork out a thousand dollars and he messaged me like it's your fault for not knowing about this permit um 
you can't go unless you fork out the money and I didn't have a thousand dollars I was a poor student and I was like I just got to Indonesia I can't do any research for six months I'm just stuck here I'm I, I can't do my degree blah blah like, it's a problem for everyone if, yeah. like, this doesn't happen at all so he, he put it on me like your your life's over now like <laughs> oh we'll give up yeah so the next day he's like I've been thinking about it here's the money you continue your research like yeah. it was very I don't know if it's manipulative but he would make me go through this turmoil of like my life's over I'm stuck what do I do it was not a supportive constructive environment and then the next day he'll be like you're worrying for nothing it was like why are you stressed why are you stressed here you go here's the problem solved <laughs> um even when so he his his like academic section of the university focused around drones when Todd came I was like oh Todd's here doing some drone work. Is there any information that you need for your office? And he gave me this really horrible email about why Todd shouldn't be there. He didn't have my permission to be there. Even though, like I said, my boss hired him. It's nothing to do with me or my honors project. There's no conflict of interest. There's no, like, it's totally separate. He's not working on my honors with me. And then he's like, okay. To the point, <laughs> he even said, like, you can never get anywhere without using my name. And then I was like, screw him. And I started, like, I won an award at a festival. I made a name for myself. I was very renowned that year, <laughs> if I do say so myself. And um, then he denied me the rights to a moderation meeting at the end of my honors degree. I don't know what that means. Like, so at the end of your degree, you get a, like, at the end of your honors, you get a mark. And then you get to have a moderation meeting where you defend your thesis to see if you can improve that mark or if that mark was accurate. Oh, they'll like, be like, this is a B-grade B thesis. And you'll be like, nah, come actually, on, it's A, it's great. Look at it. And um, they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. So I didn't, he didn't allow me to have that. They just said, your grade is C. That's it. Take it. Yeah. Um, so basically, I thought every time I opened an email, it was going to cause me to have to like burst into tears and have the most emotional visceral reaction mm. like so any email after that year that i got from any professional any like person of authority i would be too afraid to open it and it would take me a lot of emotional resources to just open an email like to the point that, where that's a fairly popular thing people have like their email inbox with like a thousand unread emails that they haven't bothered to read and then like, it's been a week later and now like responding a week later is like just embarrassing in its own right and so then you leave it longer and now it's been a month and you're like oh just even messaging them back now at this point is just gonna be too embarrassing i'm just gonna delete it and they get anxiety just opening their email what I have, That's most people. I have zero emails in my inbox. I'm a very yeah, tidy person. I, mean, I don't, I know don't how, feel like I don't that. know how email gives you stress at all. It's but completely different. To the point where a lonely conservationist this year said, hey, Jesse, can we chat on FaceTime or whatever? I, I, we need to talk, I need to talk to you. Mm. I was petrified. I did not know what he was going to say to me. In my brain, I was like, he's going to say, I posted something that was deeply offensive. I have let down the whole conservation I've, I've let down all the lonely conservationists i have been a disgrace to my family to my elders i have like i've like i was just imagining the worst case scenario then i ended up chatting with him and he's like hey how are you let's chat it was about literally he had a question about something to do with like um how to create a community or something something that i've been doing that he wanted some advice on 
I created Lonely Conservationist. He was just a person in my community. Why am I still feeling visceral fear that he just wanted to talk to me? Like, that's not normal, right? And it's not helpful to you. I didn't, I didn't really realize this until I talked to him and I was like, God, today I was so scared to talk to you. Like, and he's like, what do you mean you were scared? I was I like, when you said you wanted to talk to me, I had this deep visceral fear. <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean? You're like the leader of this organization. You're doing all this cool stuff. Like, we look up to you. Why? I never it expected It sounds like you. something like your boss or parent would be like, we need to have a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's to do with like the language again and like maybe acknowledge that people have been in turbulent times and academia is very like egotistical and very like high pressure situation i heard from my friend the other day that her supervisor is aware of a similar situation that she went through so when he sends an email now and he realizes that he could have seemed a bit short he will message again to be like sorry if i seemed a bit short i'm not angry with you i'm just like walking between meetings or something <laughs> and that's that second email is enough to stop a day of worrying yeah like that is so important <laughs> um and so i just think like maybe that's something for people to consider outside of conservation or maybe like just in general to just think about how you come across to people even just asking can we talk because it sounds like you know when you're in a relationship it's like can we talk shit we're gonna break up like that's the line like we need to talk that's dun 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 <laughs> yeah so, yeah, I just think that it's interesting today because at the end of this chapter in the book, I say I still feel guilty that I've still never sought help for this. But I think in my current life, there's not a lot of these triggers that will send me into feeling this, except for this person saying he needs to talk. There's nothing that will like set me back. I'm fine unless someone tries <laughs> to contact me, then I'm a mess emotionally. But recently... This is going to seem so outlandish to people because I've talked about academia and like my kind of feelings towards it. I have been considering doing a PhD in conservation psychology next year because I feel like I'm really drawn to the research side of things and it just makes sense to have that like support and a little bit of financial income instead of just trying to do it on my own. Then I realized that a lot of the trauma that I've been experiencing may not have just been from Indonesia but could have been from academia and that's why I have such a, a visceral reaction to it. And I have decided now, if I am going to do a PhD, that I will seek help before doing that. Because I just have this feeling that going back into academia will, I, I'm really worried that I'll have this deep, innate, like doom, end of the world reaction to like just something. Because yeah. I haven't been in academia since I was scared for my life. Yeah. So I think maybe that's a solution and that is the solution that I've kind of come to since finishing the book and since publishing it. So I couldn't write it there. But maybe it's if you feel like you will be exposed to a situation that will reignite those feelings of trauma or instability or unsafety, maybe you just need to, if like, I know it's with PTSD, it's exposure therapy is, is good. Like that's what one of the mechanisms well, and, and to do with like it. Under controlled circumstances. Yeah, under controlled normal, circumstances. Um, but like for me, it's, I have a feeling I will be exposed to a situation that will like invoke some of these reactions again. I'm just I'm, picturing someone who's like, man, I just really <laughs> fall apart under high pressure situations. If Jesse said I should just experience it more and no, then no, they no, just subject no, themselves. I, I, just, I just want to have the <laughs> disclaimer that 
like it is a coping mechanism or like a type of therapy to be exposed to it but I'm saying for myself personally knowing I will be exposed to it is a time where I feel like I need that extra support at that time like maybe like just because it's exposure therapy doesn't mean that it's easy to have exposure or that you should just expose yourself like for me that this is the like line in the sand where I it gives you a more concrete reason and like a problem to present yeah, to a professional because be if, like, I was really stressed out by this before, I'm diving in again. Yeah. Do you have any pointers and help? Yeah, because like I think even just talking about getting into academia has made me feel some of those things again and has made me think like, oh, this is this is it. Like this is I have been fine for four years I haven't been fine, but like I have dealt with it and found my own coping mechanisms for four years because I've been outside of academia. And now that I'm starting to think about academia again, it's like giving me all these alarm bells. So this is the time that I may need that extra help going forward. So maybe like if you don't have the incomes, you're facing no stigmas. For me, it's been a really tangible thing to be like, if I'm going to take this step, I'm going to take this step to help me get through it first. Like everyone, when we go out into the field, has a first aid kit like that's just a thing that you do so for me i guess if i'm going back into academia like my first aid kit would be to like or my risk assessment would be like this may be a risk let's try and mitigate this now not saying it can be mitigated but you know (laughs) um so it's interesting because like this is something i've been dealing with even this week so I'm, i'm i'm glad we can talk about it now instead of earlier on because I feel like I have something kind of constructive to say that I've been <laughs> working on it with okay um but I wanted to to ask you like do you feel I know mental health is a stigma for men especially in a lot of the um like charities towards men or like the focus towards men has primarily been around mental health but in outside of conservation do you feel like there's the same stigma to seeking help for mental health, considering you have a job, you have the finances, you have the resources at your office. Is this something that you feel to the same extent? Uh, in, in my personal experience, there probably is still a lot of stigma. Even like, um, we have a team that's neurodiverse. What does that mean? They're a bit on the autistic Oh, that's the spectrum. autistic team that we were talking about before. Yeah. I love that neurodiverse. Because well, even in the whole conversation, we've been like, mental health equals depression and anxiety. It's, it's the whole like, range of things. There's more than that, right? Yeah. Like, that's, you know, we just have the most experience with probably anxiety, right? Well, <laughs> that's, that's I don't even know. I feel like I'm not an anxious person. This is the thing. I've never been diagnosed. So I don't even know how to categorize my feelings. And I talk yeah. about this in the book. Like, I said I felt messed up. Can't identify yeah. how. Yeah, I just felt rubbish. <laughs> I just felt bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, Todd struggles with anxiety, so that's something you have a more like visceral. That's what I relate. With. Well, yeah. I don't, I'm sympathetic to like how people describe it, without you know it being a massive problem in my life. Yeah. But even um, we have a team that's uh, yeah like autistic people. Who were like fairly on the spectrum to the point where they were like part of this whole let's hire autistic people to get jobs and help them like with actual you know carers to help them integrate into the and you, you still have like 
people being like just a bit mean and bullying and like making assumptions about him and like treating him differently. Yeah. That's a hard thing because if you Which I think is just exaggerated is exaggerated because they are like in a different team with a label of yeah, the autistic people, which doesn't help matters say. to me. If you isolate people and give them help and that's like a like this is the neurodiverse team mm. that makes it seem like they can't be integrated because they aren't. Like they're not normal because they're not at a desk next to me, they're in a separate office. So it yeah. does kind of provoke a stigma that otherwise may not have been there yeah yeah Mm, that's interesting i wonder if in other because i know like if you have autism you have good focus so it would be really good for coding and a lot of it stuff but i wonder if i think i said before they're the most friendly useful people who are the best at their jobs in the whole place so i wonder if other organizations and companies have different departments for people with different skills and abilities and if that provokes a stigma or if that actually does help because if i was put in a like oh jesse's in the i can't answer emails office Mm. then nobody would even try and email me and they'll think that i'm shit at emails where i could reply to an email very well i just the opening part is the hard thing (laughs) (laughs) like by giving people help are we it, like if we give people help in the wrong way is that just exacerbating well, the problem well this is something we have no idea about we're just yeah yeah speculating speculating yeah it's <laughs> it's challenging. it surely must be helpful to some people yeah but i think so what i found extremely useful in my life and i think i wouldn't have even had this conclusion of seeking help before getting into a phd if I didn't have lonely conservationists who shared their stories where I could relate to and they kind of normalized by them seeking help it normalized the experience for me and mm. it was like oh this is something you, I, I'm stupid not to do this and by surrounding myself with people who have actually taken the time to get diagnosed or seek help and normalizing it but second just hearing their stories and hearing that I'm not the only one that's gone through this and I really recommend if you are struggling in the industry, please read the blogs on lonely conservationists because there might be one and there's been like three or four that could have been written about my life. And I just yeah. am so thankful for these blogs and really shaping the way I, I see what I've gone through, what I can do, like tangible solution or not really even solutions. I'm not saying they can solve the problem, but seeing how they've dealt with it has helped me find ways for me to deal with it. I think the problem was that in conservation, everyone's trying to be perfect and nobody talks about seeking, um, seeking help for their mental health problems. And that means I didn't know that these solutions really existed. So this is part of the reason why I am talking about it so openly now and so openly in the book is because I, I hope that if you relate to anything I've said today, at least you, you can feel like we're doing it together. You're not struggling alone anymore because i think mental health a lot of it is just feeling isolated feeling alone yeah surely and hopefully now that there's like over four thousand people in lonely conservationists at least one other person can relate to you so if you haven't told your story i know it's so scary it's some people press submit and then they have anxiety until it's posted and then all day they have anxiety until they get really nice comments of people being like oh my god that was a great blog i totally relate 
like people never expect nice comments or nice feedback for their blogs yeah. <laughs> and they always get it like nobody has ever written anything mean it's always been people that are so thankful to have exposure and i really love this year um annabelle submitted a story about her chronic health issues and so many people came to me because she didn't put any contact details because she didn't want it to hinder her chances of getting a job um, she just has her first name annabelle so that's mm. what i will say okay. um, but so many people came to me asking to be put in contact with her because they also had chronic health issues it's not talked about a lot in the industry it does really limit the amount of field work you can do and it was just incredible for them to have that person to relate to them and speak to them mm. and feel less alone and i think the community like i thought i'd have to come in back to the business incubator that i talked about in the previous episode i thought i had to solve everybody's problems it turned out that just being a community and having people that you understood or that you didn't have to justify yourself to like a lot of the time in conservation i'm like oh i like i'm working 40 hours but like i'm not getting paid so i kind of had to have a job but like blah. Yeah. oh i really love this species of mushroom and i know it's just a mushroom and you won't get it but like it's just changed my life and to have people surrounding you that love mushrooms and <laughs> that like also are in conservation and you don't have to justify yourself to them is really refreshing now that since moving to melbourne all yeah. my friends have the same interests as me or the same kind of story as me so i i've built this community for myself that i don't have to like make excuses for myself or explain I, myself i think to. a big part of it is the sort of it's, it's less of a focus on the actual conservation and more on the people mm. and like their their life story and their relationships because if you had like an online community for people who love mushrooms pretty quickly it will get dominated by like people arguing about particular mushrooms and like having really heated discussions and just like you know hating each other this like, is like oh, you... a mushroom yeah like blah blah, blah. <laughs> like with, and like you know it's cool to hang out with people like mushrooms but usually some people take it a bit too far yeah and it sort of ruins the whole community yeah so if we're in a space where it's about our personal experiences nobody can doubt yeah you no one that. can be like oh your personal experience is wrong it's like oh hang on well actually that's what i feel like it is outside of the community is like i was talking about how like in a previous episode i got in the uber and i felt like i had to justify my whole life to this uber driver just trying to make small talk like oh so what do you do uh. if the uber driver was a conservationist and they're like oh i study um squid i would be like oh cool i run a, a community of conservationists and they'll be like cool i understand why you're doing it why it's important yeah. like i don't have to explain my life story to this squid scientist who's driving the uber <laughs> actually one time i got in an uber and i told them i was this was before lonely conservationists i was like flew this is a ridiculous thing as well i've spent money flying to queensland to do a job interview for an ecology firm who mm. then told me they didn't want to hire anybody anymore and they just were interested in speaking to me so i had spent money <laughs> a bit of a dick move yeah like what the hell anyway got in an uber on the way back from that um interview the guy found out i I was, I'm an ecologist. Am I an ecologist? I guess part of me is an ecologist. I studied ecology. Imposter syndrome. Anyway, and he's like, oh, tell me some fun facts about animals. And I was like, have you heard of a pillfish? And he's like, no. And I'm like, it's this fish that when it gets scared, just scurries into the anus of a sea cucumber. And he's like, oh my God, you're the best uber 
like person I've ever had in my passenger seat. <laughs> this is the most engaging conversation ever. <laughs> but like, it's that's you can't really talk about pearlfish and sea cucumbers to everybody you meet. You know, it's just like some special people like like find joy. <laughs> but I think like that's a huge thing that's helped me in like the past two years since I've been in Melbourne. Is it two years? Two and a half years? Mm. yeah like just being surrounded by that community because that's that's like half of the time since i've been to indonesia so half of it was really turbulent and the other half has been just finding a community where it's just i don't i can just be me and maybe that's enough sometimes like it's being finding an environment to be yourself won't solve deep trauma but (laughs) it like definitely improves your quality of life yeah (laughs) certainly is there like forums and stuff for people i don't know there's like not really an equivalent to lonely conservationist for other um for other like facets of life but is there any like online forums or like reddit pages or anything where you've read it and you're like oh my life is justified now like i feel like i fit in or you just feel like something you've read or seen like cemented something to you or made you feel like oh i am normal uh not like as all encompassing right mm. people have like small snippets of their life like a meme that you relate to <laughs> yeah like oh you know i don't know some meme about like oh do you ever sit in the toilet and just like stare at the same spot for too long that's not even a meme but like <laughs> you know just this tiny snippet of life that you're like yeah i get this i get what this guy's about for that moment yeah. but like if you're you know a conservationist or having the same sort of struggles you can be like, oh my god, this person's like half the conservationists you end up chatting to. You're always like, this person is me. Yeah. Like we're the same person. Todd's always like, how do you keep finding people that are you? Because yeah. the, the other day I was talking to a lonely conservationist, and their wedding plans are like identical to ours. And I was like, who are you? <laughs> like, there's all these lonely conservationists that just have adopted a specific, a specific like facet of my life that I relate to. But, like, I don't want to expose your um, your personal life or anything because this is me. I'm happy to talk about my life. I don't want to talk about yours too much. But there was <laughs> this time where you were in Sydney and you met your brother. He told you some things about when you were growing up that really, like, justified how you feel today. Like, I think sometimes having somebody else reaffirming how you feel makes it seem like it's not just in your head. I think this is like similar to the blogs where you could spend your life feeling this way that you think is very isolated to you and you think you keep justifying why you shouldn't feel that way or why like I was stupid it was like on me that I like there's no external factors that yeah it's it, it's usually small things though like I have phone anxiety if I need to call someone on the telephone it like really makes me freak out a lot that's why we're together because he handles the emails and I handle the phone calls. Yeah, so between the two of us, we can communicate like a normal person. <laughs> but like on the internet, you find out, oh, there's like, you know, heaps of people, like probably like 20% of the population, especially RH for some reason, who have experienced the exact same thing. And they just always like order their pizza online instead of calling them up and stuff. Yeah. I wonder if like, is it the generation of people who grew up with a landline? is that like something like because it was a family phone it was like not very private like if you are a modern generation like gen z and you grew up with an iphone or like a a personal phone and you never had to share 
you never have to have anybody listening to your conversations or somebody might not accidentally pick up the the other phone in the house and be able to hear exactly what you're saying i wonder if like the act of having a landline impacted people in well, their phone anxiety that's why i found it so surprising because for me it was because my family would listen in on my conversations and if i was like calling a friend or like a girlfriend that would immediately like make fun of me for everything i said which made me not enjoy being on the phone anymore yeah so, so like i thought that was like a very me problem but then to find out like there's heaps and heaps of other people who have the same phobia yeah well i think like, like, do they have the same issue what do they have a mean family who listened in on the line as well well maybe it could be someone on the other line that says something horrible to them but like <laughs> yeah. like i wouldn't have this issue with emails and you wouldn't have this problem with phones if there was no negative association with them right like there must have been some negative causation for me the horror also comes from like for us like instant messaging and like text message so easy to do mm-hmm. and so practical and like you can send a message and be like get back to me within you know a day normally is the rules yeah. the social rules <laughs> but like if you call someone you're making their phone like make all this noise interrupting their whole life stop and you're just you're saying right stop now. what you're doing right now loudly bursting into the room and yeah. talk to me right now on the most important thing in your world right now which yeah. seems very rude to me especially you know when someone calls you and you're pooping and you're like like what do i, I yeah. like i have the time but now is not the right situation if you're calling me it must be life or death yeah <laughs> what was there a period in time where like so landlines there was like <laughs> getting, into uh, getting into the landlines how, how much did landlines impact mental health <laughs> there's a period of, in time where people stopped using landlines and started using mobiles and only scammers called landlines so you would associate like a landline call with a scammer or like yeah. a, like a telemarketer or something yeah i wonder if like even if you had no negative association with like being bullied on the phone there, if you were born in that period of time where landlines were 100% telemarketers because your real friends and family would start using your mobile. Yeah. Like, is has that impacted anyone psychologically? I don't know. I did no, not I expect so. this conversation to get such into old telephone technology. <laughs> and I hate when you work somewhere new and the phone rings. Yeah, And answer you answer it. it and some guy just yells at you like, oh, where's Frank? Who's I, Frank? You need you need to pull the lever over there. I'm like, I don't know what, what are you talking about. What Who's lever? Frank? Yeah. What Frank? You know the one. Put, just get Frank on the phone. You're fucking useless. What are you doing, man? And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to answer the phone. If you have phone anxiety or email anxiety, just know you're not alone. This is yeah. like a problem that at least we face. <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of other people face it too, and that's I think like. I still think you have a very unique email anxiety. No, I know other people in conservation with email anxieties as well. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I think from bad supervisors. Opening emails. If if you have had a bad situation with a supervisor in an academic sense, and it has led you to have an email phobia, please comment on a post (laughs) where where I advertise this podcast. Just let me know and we'll see how many people there are. (laughs) I love emails because you can receive it and they don't know that you've read it yet. So you can spend like three hours researching and crafting the response and they might think, oh, they opened it three hours later and just sent me back this brilliant response. I think there's new technology now that tells if you've read it and haven't responded. This is going to change my life. (laughs) That's when they put 
like the red on instant messaging and you can tell if yeah. somebody has left you on red <laughs> that's the most horrific feeling if you, <laughs> is our friendship over this is something that like when Todd and I first got together he messaged he messaged he used very like proper punctuation in his text messages and for me if you use a full stop in a text message <laughs> that's like he hates me now like at all. i was like why is he inviting me over his house after he just used a full stop in the last message like what the hell is going on with you'll this be guy? like i'll come over at six and i will like sounds great full, full stop. stop and you're like Happy. he doesn't do it anymore yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um i think before this conversation gets too off the rails um just again surround yourself with people that are like-minded read the blogs find people who have gone through similar things to you even some people have told me they've read blogs which was eerily similar to their life and that gave them permission to post their story because they thought their story wasn't like worthy until they saw somebody else who had told their story and it was like very similar yeah which is messed up yeah everyone's story is worthy i i love reading every single one of them it they what if someone's story is like, I went from strength to strength, had no problems. Yeah, they're not no allowed to post. Well, isn't know, that useful though? No, because there's no. so every other conservation forum is for those people. <laughs> <laughs> this is a space to talk about the hardships because it's in, like, I have a purpose. It's not just a bitch about our lives. It's because mm. the more we put a spotlight on these things the more pressure there is to do something about it and even the reason i'm considering a phd is that i want to learn more about what's going on with like the psychology of conservationists so we can have mechanisms in place to help like conserve conservationists like i just think conservation efforts can only get better if we start because people have been conserving things for years yet are we making very huge strides i think the missing link is looking after people Mm. so i think the first step is there is a purpose to telling your story if you feel really anxious nervous about doing it that's normal we all do every time i post something on lonely conservationists i am freaking out before when i published the book i was freaking out for like a week visceral fear because i everything you say when it's so personal is like even worse when it comes back when people like slap back clap back when people say like this is ridiculous but it's like this is my lived experience how can you say that it hurts but nobody has done that so far um yeah it's only cause positives like if they do we'll just quietly delete their comments yeah (laughs) you will never know about (laughs) it um so basically like if you feel scared to submit your blog you're not alone everybody does but it helps immensely it helps people like me identify traumas it helps people feel less alone because other people have had similar experiences to them it also helps highlight from an industry perspective the gaps that need to be filled that we do need mental health that's standardized maybe throughout the industry we do need more resources to help people in isolation who are experiencing natural disasters who are facing death who have been in the australian bushfires this summer where all of their study species may have been wiped out. These are all very traumatic things and people need... They need it to be, like, socially acceptable to deal with the death of a species because, like, it's acceptable when somebody dies to grieve. I don't think it's socially acceptable for when your species dies to grieve about that, to have actual grief. When people feel that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're an animal lover... Don't say that! (laughs) 
if you spend years of your life studying a species of uh, Antichinus, which are a little marsupial mouse-looking thing, yeah, they if you study them and put in all your effort and hard work and then one bushfire season wipes all of them out your research is like done it's a bit pointless now isn't yeah it? your research is pointless a species that you've bonded with connected with really loved is completely gone i think that's a bigger problem like you will feel grief and that is okay that needs to be normalized there's so many things i think it, it would you say it's a little bit normalized within conservation circles but if you if they met other family and friends they were like why are you crying over a mouse so i remember the day i was in high school the day the last javanese rhino died i sat in my room and i cried my dad came in he asked why i was crying i told him he going out and said to my oh jesse's having a bad day that cut me deep because <laughs> it was like that what my grief wasn't acknowledged it was like the reason i was upset wasn't valid so it's important to like to normalize this grief over the loss, like any loss that we experience in the industry, because there have been people that have died as well in the blogs, like a range of things that people could feel grief about. <laughs> um, like there's reasons why these blogs are so powerful in normalizing these things to like other people outside of the industry, but also highlighting what needs to change within the industry. So I think the blogs are like my first step into some kind of mental health awareness. Mm. At uh, the very least, have your co-workers be understanding. Yeah, at the very least. Like, and I think what's weird is that because I'm so deep in lonely conservationists, I forget that if somebody publishes a blog, like their friends and family are going to read it and they're outside <laughs> of the circle. But it's important that they know. And like, for instance, I've never talked about any of this with my parents and if they read it in the book or listen to this podcast, it would be probably the first time they're hearing about it. So it's hard to talk to people that don't understand. So maybe if you write it out and it's in a cohesive story and you have like 80 other blogs to back you up that your feelings are normal, it's yeah. a more um, effective way of communicating these things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I didn't expect the blogs to be this powerful in this regard. I didn't expect them to identify traumas or to like form these support networks but they've been the best thing that's ever come from you would assume maybe just a hodgepodge of individual different stories that had no relation to each other no common threads what's crazy is that i never expected anybody else to submit their story <laughs> i told <laughs> my i told my story in january last year and i thought this is this is it like i started a brand new instagram page brand new blog i started from zero why would anyone say such personal stuff alongside me not knowing who I was? So the fact that we have so many blogs today is just bewildering. Like, it is incredible. And I thank each and every one of you who have submitted your blog. Again, if you are a, um, a high school student, a volunteer, a citizen scientist, no matter who you are, you are worthy of submitting a blog and your stories really help tell those stories that have no representation. Like, if you look in Lonely Conservationists and you see your story is not represented, it means that it's even more important for your story to be represented. So you yeah. can help those people who can't find any common threads anywhere else. Explain to us your phone phobia. Your phone phobia. Uh, unfortunately, I don't take blanket phone phobia stories. If they're related <laughs> to conservation, I would take them. It's not yeah. like lonely phone users. <laughs> As much as I would love. Maybe Todd can set up a, a sister blog 
yeah. lonely technological inept people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I can share my email story on his blog. He can share his phone story. Maybe this is something that can happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, um, I'd love to hear your stories. I can't stress enough how important they are. Um, if you do need mental health resources, please check out the list of them on the blog. And don't take anything we say as like medically sound advice. Descriptive in any way. We are not doctors or medical professionals, but this has just been our experiences. So that was our episode on mental health. I am really appreciative of you guys for listening to this. This was the longest episode so far and also the longest chapter in the book. And it was a really tough podcast to do, not at the time, but afterwards I really sat with the fact that there was some drama responses that I didn't even know I had until we talked about it on this podcast. So thank you for coming along this very weird and very public mental health journey with me. Um, Todd and I really appreciate your support throughout all of this. Um, And as I said, I hope you guys can submit your stories to the blog alongside mine. If you want to, it's at www.lonelyconservationist.com. Check us out on Instagram at Lonely Conservationist and Twitter at Lonely Conserve. You can support us at Patreon um, at patreon.com slash lonelyconservationist. And of course, you can buy the book um, where you can read the mental health chapter for yourself. Um, But thank you again for bearing with us through this episode and I look forward to chatting about some more lighthearted stuff next week. See ya.